That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BX, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. Before you even get to the initiatives and the strategies and the mentoring programs and the work assignments, do you actually have a culture that is accepting of difference? Or do you have a culture that says to people, unless you assimilate in this particular box, you will not succeed here? And then more importantly, are you training your partners, your managers, your, you know, everyone to, 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 to work with that? I tell folks, you know, conflict isn't a bad word, y'all. Conflict, we grow out of conflict. You're never going to change if you don't have conflict. The problem isn't that we are in conflict. The problem is we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't right. like the tension. We don't like having to resolve things. We definitely don't like listening to each other and perspectives that are hard to understand. But if you really want all of those amazing benefits of diversity, you gotta let people be diverse. You gotta let us use our culture and our communication and our differences and the way we work with clients and build teams and let us change the way work has always been done. Else, what are you even doing? Because all you're doing is paying lip service to this and nothing will change. Yes, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to be us with me today is my friend, Michelle Silverthorne, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Michelle, how you doing? Hey, Merle, I am doing wonderfully. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love talking with you. We have known each other such a, such a long time. So it's always a pleasure to talk with you and I enjoy listening to the podcast and I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So where are you? You're, you're always out and about, and, you know, on planes and in different countries and all that. Where are you today? I am always on planes. Now I am in Ann Arbor. So we, um, my family and I moved to Ann Arbor in Michigan uh, last August. And so we've been here for a year. We lived in Chicago before that. And then in a very tiny town in Michigan after that. And so we've been here for a year and it's been great. It's a great college town. It's where I went to law school. And so in about one month, I'm having all of our, my my entire 2008 classes, having our, our, um, our 15th, oh my goodness, our 15th reunion here in Ann Arbor. So we'll get to see all of our friends here and we don't have to leave home for our college reunion it's great it's here it's fantastic that's amazing well i've seen um on facebook i've seen that property and i'm i'm waiting for my invitation you know you can come <laughs> yeah you never you, you gotta leave california you gotta come out to the midwest and like come enjoy come enjoy our four 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 six 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 months of beautiful weather that we have Okay, I'll take you up on it. So just just to let our our uh, listeners know, I'm just gonna re, you know kind of give them a brief idea of of your background. Um, Michelle attended Princeton um, University undergrad, uh, as she just alluded to, uh, received her JD from Michigan Law School, worked for a couple of uh, very well-known large firms for about four years, it looks like, and then moved to the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. Uh, and you were there for about six and a half years before founding Inclusion Nation, uh, a, a name which I absolutely love, uh, in 2018. Michelle is a badass keynote speaker, um, an author, and an overall DEIB uh, thought leader. Michelle, did I leave anything out? No, I think you got everything. Yeah, we're celebrating our five-year anniversary with Inclusion Nation. It has been more than my wildest dreams, and so I'm so happy to be here. Great. So why don't, why don't you give us an idea? Uh, I always like to start by by having the guests give us an idea of your background. I mean, you can go, you can start, say I was, a, you know, I was born wherever, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, it, you know, I would, I would love to hear your background. I think I have some idea, but, you know, our listeners may not, you know, what your story is, how your journey has been, who's been your influence along the way, uh, and just give people an idea of who Michelle is. Oh man, I'd love to talk about that. So I grew up in the Caribbean. So I, um, anyone who, so I give about, I don't know, a hundred or so speeches a year, right? Maybe a hundred. I think we did 110 last year. Wow. Um, mostly. Um, well, I would say about 
70% virtual, 30% in person. And so anyone who's out there who has listened to my speeches knows my story because I talk about myself a lot in my programs. Okay. Um, but I grew up in the Caribbean and I lived in Jamaica and Trinidad. And then I went to Princeton University when I was 17. Um, and then after Princeton, like I said before, I went to Michigan Law and that's where I met my husband. We met on the very first day of law school. Wow. Um, so it, was, um, it, was, it was love at first contracts class. Um, <laughs> And whenever I whenever I talk to law students, I do um, law school orientations every year. So we do anti-bias trainings with law students. I almost like look to your left, look to your right. You never know who you might see. Um, <laughs> right. And so um, and then I did that and then I went into the big law life. Um, I worked at two wonderful law firms, Latham and Watkins and Ship Harden. Um, and I realized I wanted to do more than I wanted to teach. I wanted to um, work on trainings, work on speeches. Um, one of the things I talk about when I when I speak to um, usually junior attorneys, whether I have a program called Own Your Value and how you can own your value as an associate. And I tell them, you know, whatever path that you started on may not be the path that you ended, but what you're trying to do as you go on this path is develop your expertise. And so for me, that was in public speaking, that was in trainings, that was in conversations. And so when I went to the Supreme Court, they were looking for someone to deliver those types of trainings. And that's what I did. A lot of trainings on ethics and professionalism. Now, parallel to that, I am a black woman living in the United States and I um, working in, you know, I went to predominantly white institutions when I was in law school and in college. I worked in predominantly white law firms. And it, I mean, a lot of us have had similar experiences, right? Yeah. Where we go through these these law firms, you know, as, you know, from, you know, as supportive as they can be, but we experience that isolation, that feeling that we are the onlys, that we don't have access to the same mentors, the same sponsors, that informal feedback. I mean, you know all of that. Yeah. So, um, and that was also what I wanted to teach. The Supreme Court had a requirement, they still do, that Illinois lawyers have to get a diversity um, credit when they take their CLEs. And that was really the beginning of my journey. You know, I had my stories, I had my experience, but I spent a lot of time studying and reading and attending programs. I met with so many people, Vernay Myers, Ritu Basin, um, they're really great friends of, of, of the work and the work yes. that law firms do. Um, so many good, Joelle Emerson, so many good quality, incredible consultants who really commit to this work of change. And I saw what they were doing and I decided, um, you know, I could do that as well. And I wanted to do that as well. And then specifically what happened was in 2018, um, I wrote an op-ed that was published in the Chicago Tribune that was about my children. And it was my husband is white and I'm black. And it was an op-ed all about being called a nanny to my children living on the north side of Chicago in a very white neighborhood. And they would always assume that this black woman here who had her two biracial kids in the playground was the nanny. Um, and it was it was a very popular op-ed. People still talk to me about this article that they've read. Um, but that led to a TED Talk. And that TED Talk led to a book deal. And um, concurrent with all of that was I went to this um, conference. And it was all women who had started their own organizations, their own companies. I mean, it was a political action group. But it was all women who had started their own companies, and maybe about 150 of them. And I looked at these women in this community and said, I could do this. You know, I can do this. And I even have more of a safety net than a lot of these women do, and they're doing this. So why can't I? And that was why five years ago I decided to launch Inclusion Nation. And through the many, 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 and Merle, you know this, trials and tribulations of DEI over the last five years, we have been here, we have been strong, and we have really, truly phenomenal clients. I mean, 30, 40%, I would say, are law firms and legal departments, but then the other 60% are just everybody. It's it's all my law firm, their clients who all bring me in and they hire me. It's Hollywood studios, it's book publishers, it's banks and insurance companies, and it's people who are really committing to this work of change. And I just love doing this work. I love, I love every single second of what I do. I love that. And and we're gonna get to the current events uh, <laughs> within this this uh, podcast because uh, I'm I, I can't wait to hear your take and have that conversation with you now. What was it like to to grow up in the Caribbean mm -hmm. and then show up at Princeton? Because, you know, my daughter went to Yale. We took her uh, to see Princeton. She actually wanted to go to Princeton. We knew she wasn't going to get in. She wasn't a Princeton kid. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it it it's 
I've been there, so I know it had to be somewhat of, I'm assuming it had to be somewhat of a culture shock for you. Yeah. Yeah, the um actually next week I am delivering a program for the Princeton alumni officers, the ones who run all the different alumni years at Princeton. Because y'all, Princeton, Princeton is all about their alumni and they 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 get their alumni involved because they need to they need to raise those funds. Um right. it's a really great community. But I remember going there and Jamaica, I believe, and don't quote me on these numbers, I think Jamaica is 95% black. And then my mom is from Trinidad, which is an incredibly ethnically religious, diverse country. You know, it's Muslims and Hindus and um, and, and 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 lots of varied and Christians and lots of very different cultures and races and backgrounds. And then to come from that to go to Princeton, which what I loved about what my experience at Princeton was the before I even got on campus, we had an orientation program. And I love that law schools do it now for international students. And there was, and now they have a lot of like minority access programs now and marginalized community programs and first gen programs, pre-orientation programs, just to equip you for the experience of now you are the minority. And that is, I mean, for someone who has never ever been the minority in her entire 17 years of her life, that was just eye-opening. And I think, and I've talked with other West Indians about this, a lot of my friends who do talk about race in the States, um, now, Elizabeth Leva is a really good example because she has a fantastic book called I'm Not Yelling, A Black Woman's Guide to the Workplace. And she talks about that experience of being in the majority and then coming and being in the minority yeah. and seeing how, you know, the code switching and recognizing that people look at you and they see a bias and they see a stereotype and they have prejudicial thoughts that you have zero control over. And frankly, you weren't even aware that they had because you didn't grow up here and learning all of that on the fly. Um, I loved Princeton. I loved my experience there. And part of the reason I wrote my book and I do this work is I want people to understand you do have assumptions of what other people are able to do, what they think, who they are, where they came from. And we, you know, we all do. And especially if you are in a majority group, you have that ability to make someone either feel included or excluded. And that's it. So what is your choice? You can either stick with the people who you know and who make you feel comfortable, or you can continually reach out and include someone else. And then that's just the start. You know, we can also talk about equity after that. But that was my experience at Princeton and at Michigan. And then even, you know, as I go through my life living again in you know, a lot of predominantly white spaces in America trying to learn how to navigate that as being a black woman and being a black woman immigrant. Right. It's interesting. I I'm I uh am was born in uh Oklahoma. I'm from mm. the United States, but I grew up in Compton, which you know was a very yeah. similar experience to yep. your being, you know, Compton was probably 95% black, if not more. And then I went to USC when I was 16. And, li mm -hmm. and and lived on campus, and so it was, a, it was a, and we didn't have a program like that. But I'm I'm also a lot uh, more uh, a lot more mature uh, than than you, and so it's really good to hear that that those kind of programs e exist. And even mm -hmm. when I went to Berkeley for law school, you know there was a program before that that they had for folks before it started, but it was more. It was less about how are you going to fit in and, you know, to help people understand that it was going to be different. And, and it felt more like it was some kind of, uh, you know, you're you're not uh, prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, let it let's help. I forget what the word is that, that they use for that. But like like you're you're not going to be on the same level, mm. you know, educationally or intellectually. Um and that, of course, was BS. But yeah. um, uh, it sounds like things have come a long way, so I'm I'm really glad to glad to hear that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, to just to circle back to what you just said, one of the things that I think schools are getting better at, and they can be doing much better at, is training their professors and faculty and staff to understand the way that you teach is ingrained in how you grew up, and it's ingrained in there are racial biases that exist all throughout academia. And so what are what are your own biases? What are your own assumptions? You know, when you teach these courses, especially in law school and con law and crim law, what do you think of as important? Like you don't think that we should think about the circumstances of the party that's before the Supreme Court. But if I if that party is from my identity group and I've had similar experiences to that party, of course I'm gonna think about it. But if you've never had that, then that might not be something that's ever crossed your mind. 
And so having the people who are leaders and faculty and and you know even in with you know even in law firms recognizing that can help. And you also remind me of I remember when I the first time I met someone in HBCU, like not like first time ever, but like professionally speaking, when I was you know working after college. And one of the things they told me was that HBCUs do a very good job of preparing people to work in a predominantly white workplace because they explain to you, you know, how the the challenges and the experiences and how to strategically prepare yourself to face those microaggressions, to face those biases. So for any students who are listening to this, anyone contemplating where they want to go to college, I really want you to think about that too. Yeah. And think about where you feel like you are going to be best equipped to really take on this world, whether it's a strong alumni network, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of IVs and a lot of HBCUs have them. So think about what it is that you are looking for as you go out into the world. Yes, absolutely. So what about your parents? I mean, how did they feel about you leaving and, and going, you know, to the States and going to Princeton? And, you know, did they have any trepidation? You know, how, how, did, how did they uh, manage that? Uh, my parents, not at all. My parents, so my mother is Trinidadian, my dad's Jamaican. So my dad was actually first. I mean, he left Jamaica to go to Trinidad for engineering school, and they're both engineers. They've been working since I was 22. Plus, my sister had gone three years earlier to go to Vassar, so she was at Vassar. My grand, like, I mean, we have a, we've had a long history of our family going overseas to go to college. Okay. My, uh, yeah, so that wasn't, that wasn't their concern. My mother was actually living in Botswana. Um, she had left for there when I was 16 because so, she could make money to send my sister and me to Vassar and Princeton. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so we had we had that that international bend. Um, you know, they dropped me off the first time they thought, you know, they, they're like, OK, you got this. And I was like, OK, I got this. And then I got this. And then and we went went off and found my community and found my people. And I think that is, you know, that's the other advice I give to students. Find your, you know. Who are the people who are going to support you? Because these friends that you make in these four years, you're going to see them again at your 50th reunion because they will be, you know, your ride or die for the rest of your lives. Right. And so when when you when you went to uh, when you after you graduated law school and you started practicing, what did you think you wanted to specialize in or did you have any idea? Hmm. My other my other lessons of life, you know, when I started practicing, I remember I specifically went to law school to do international law. And what you very quickly realize, um, and then when you have a hundred plus thousand dollars in debt, is that <laughs> you should try, um, you may want to go into something that helps you pay off the debt, but also I really loved I liked law firm life. I liked the I liked the rush of it. I liked the busyness of it. I liked the engagement of it. When I was a summer associate, and I'm going to circle back to 2008, which was not so great, but when I was a summer and I summered first year and second year, I really enjoyed that entire experience. And I got to work on some really interesting clients, some nonprofit work, pro bono work. I thought it was fascinating. And, you know, I have so many friends who are still, you know, who are they're now partners. Um, I'm married to a general counsel. And so I still see that I mean, I miss it. I miss the practicing of law. I miss that rush. I miss the intellectual engagement. I miss that community. I miss the the little tiny things that you can spot and pleadings. I love all of that. But so I started and I wanted to do international work. And then I started in law firms in 2008. And actually, my very first day was September 29th. I believe it was 2008 when the Dow Jones drop was at 600 points that day. Wow. And I mean, there was no work. I mean, my only concern back in those days was, are you going to get laid off? Because that was, right. I mean, I feel like y'all think, I think hard, now was hard. Let me tell you what 2008 <laughs> was like. It was, it was not good. Um, and so you, you just find the work that's there. And so eventually... You know, I had litigation work. I did some litigation at at, at at when I was at Latham, but it was really when I went to Schiff Harden, um, and that was really where I found what I loved, which was IP work. I loved doing IP work, and I had, and this is something that it means a great deal to me. I had a phenomenal mentor, a phenomenal okay. mentor, a phenomenal sponsor, uh, a white male partner who took me under his wing and made sure I got the work to succeed, trained me, taught me everything I knew. I mean, he was great. And when I talk about sponsors and mentors, I always think about him. And the, when I had to tell him I was leaving to go to the Supreme Court, I was like, I was in tears because I knew how much work he had put in to make sure that I had the right access and the the work that was there for me. And I really appreciated that. So did you feel, because, you know, our, our trajectory is kind of the same. I, I stayed at Cooley for about four years or so, mm -hmm. and then I left. And, and part of it, 
I feel like there is a, I don't, um, this could, this, now this is a stereotype, okay? Mm. You're so personable and you're so outgoing and you're so interesting. Did that affect your, how you, how you felt about how you fit in, in a law firm? Because it certainly did for me. You know, wait, so tell me more what you're thinking, what, what, how, how you felt I, about that. I felt like, I felt like I was different, not only because I was the only black person, mm-hmm. but just because the way I approach things and the way I got, you know, dealt with people and how outgoing I was and how, uh, like authentic I mm-hmm. was, what didn't really seem to fit the, 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 the prototype of right. what a successful law firm associate was. Yeah. You know, when I, um, so when I, um, I finally, after two years of getting that book deal, I finally got around to finishing the book. And the very first story I write in there is, um, the story about, um, my experiences starting out of my law firm. And I'm the kind of person who wants to go into an elevator and say hi to everybody and talk to people and engage with them and have a conversation. And it can be isolating because, I mean, especially because it was also 2008, so everyone was like in crisis mode. But there would be these partners who would just walk past my office all the time and they would never say hello. They wouldn't greet me. They didn't even know my name. I I mean, like, and it would it would feel so isolating. And, right. you know, if I didn't have that really, we had a really great community of first years who were together and, you know, until we were not. Um, but that, and I talk about this a lot in my book because so much of success in law firms is who you know and who talks to you and who gives you work and who takes you under their wing and who inherits, whose work do you inherit, right? And if you don't, and from the beginning, your personality is not seen as, you know, okay, this person's a lot, or, you know, the, you know, right. it's just, it's, it's hard. But for me, because lawyers can be as, I want to say introverted extrovert, because I think that's a limitation, but lawyers kind of like to sit down at their desk and work behind their computers for nine hours a day, and then right. get up at the end of the day and go home or in their Zoom screens or whatever. And I just, I was a more social person, right? I wanted to that experience of talking and chatting and having teams and such. And I didn't have that necessarily at the law firms I was at. And so that was interesting. And I, and I tell people a lot when you you think about where you want to work. You know, I, there's when I do my authenticity and belonging programs, I have people write their retirement speeches. And whenever they write their retirement speeches, you know, they don't really talk about the work or their accomplishments or their projects. What they always talk about, Merle, every time is I loved being here. I loved the work that I did. I loved the people I worked with. I love this community I made. And it's that that I want folks to think about where, you know, go where you are loved and you will do your best work. And that is what, you know, I always want to go back to. So I don't, I mean, I, you know, I think I could have succeeded at law firms fine, but I don't think I would have loved being there long-term because it wasn't my space and finding, I think it is the space for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think part, part of the challenge with DEI is that it is a space for a lot of people who aren't given that access and those resources to succeed. So you have a lot of incredibly talented people, right? Men, women, non-binary folks who are not able to stay because there are so many barriers that exist out there and they could stay. And then going back to what you said, I think part of the challenges with law firms, especially more than five years before they got more data-driven like they are now, is they would look for people like us, bubbly, outgoing, friendly people, right? But like, like they didn't know what to do with you, hostile, like, right? It's just why, that's different, right? Well, like, like, why do you want me if I'm so different and you I don't know, know right? what to like, do with you me? You need people who want to sit behind a computer screen for nine hours a day and are able to finish this and like and don't need to have like conversation breaks and like what you know. Look at what the what you know your star performers, the people who are not not the rainmakers who have been there for 25 years and can do whatever the heck they want right now. The people who started and stayed and succeeded, what did they have and what makes them stay and find that and recruit for that and you will find success. Right, exactly. See, that that was so I did read that correctly. <laughs> yeah, I think I think, and you know, and it's especially when you're young, uh, which, you know, coming out of law school, you're fairly young. It's and you're uh, a member of a, a underrepresented demographic. 
there's this thing also where it, at least for me, it was hard to figure out whether how much of it was personal mm-hmm. and how much of it was just, this is the way it is. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, when you're from, you know, like me, when you're from Compton and I didn't have like international, you know, travels and all that, I didn't even know what a bagel was until I got mm-hmm. to college, you know? So I had never had Chinese food until I went to USC, you know? So, you know, when, when, when you don't have those kind of life experiences and, you know, you're confronted with certain things, it's hard not to take it personally mm-hmm. and, and to just feel like, okay, I don't belong and I, this isn't going to work. And I probably need to leave. Once I became a recruiter and had years under my belt, you know, I, I, I've taught so many people of color off the ledge and, and talk them into staying at their firms. Right by telling them it's not personal. Yeah. You know, people are getting treated like this who don't look like you, you know? Uh, uh, but but it took years for me to understand that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of my favorite clients and I have favorites. I'm not going to mention who they are, but, <laughs> you know, I do have favorite clients and the, the firms that have managing partners who are able to understand that. And I'm thinking of one firm in particular, and he knows who he is, the managing partner, but who are able to just think through, what does it mean for someone to feel um, like they don't belong here, right? What does it mean? Because I have, I love this place, right? I am, you know, I went to this law school and I have this background and the partners in this firm all live in the same suburban New York community like I live in and our kids go to similar schools. And, you know, we, when we go to retreats, we do the things I love to do. Am I able to then recognize that there are people for whom this is not true? And if I am able to recognize that, what can I do about that? Because before you even get to the initiatives and the strategies and the mentoring programs and the work assignments, do you actually have a culture that is accepting of difference? Or do you have a culture that says to people, unless you assimilate into this particular box, you will not succeed here? And then more importantly, are you training your partners, your managers, your, you know, everyone to, 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 to work with that? I tell folks, you know, Conflict isn't a bad word, y'all. Conflict, we grow out of conflict. You're never going to change if you don't have conflict. The problem isn't that we are in conflict. The problem is we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like the tension. We don't like having to resolve things. We definitely don't like listening to each other and perspectives that are hard to understand. But if you really want all of those amazing benefits of diversity, you got to let people be diverse. You got to let us use our culture and our communication and our differences and the way we work with clients and build teams and let us change the way work has always been done. Else, what are you even doing? Because all you're doing is paying lip service to this and nothing will change. Exactly. And I think, you know, that comes down to, especially these days, and I've, you know, we kind of had a conversation around this and in my firm recently about certain things, you know, is this issue cultural or is it generational Mm. or is it both? And, and, And I think it, and, you know, my response was it's both, right? You know, and, you know, when you have institutions that have been around, you know, for, you know, several decades, and they've gone through, you know, different uh, iterations of what, what, you know, life looks like for different generations. And you have to, you have the folks who are in charge or who have been there the longest, who might not understand what the current thoughts are, or the way things are currently done. You know, somebody in leadership needs to figure out how to help people not just get along, but mm. do well together. I, I don't know if I'm saying that in mm-hmm. a way that resonates, but, you know, it, it, it reminds me kind of like of, you know, especially, you know, generationally, you know, where your, your, your parents used to say, well, I used to walk backwards in the street in the snow, you know, oh, uphill both ways, or, Merle, yes. or, or, you know, or, or, you know, bread costs 10 cents or, you know, you know, I could get a dollar's worth of gas. That's all great. And that was your experience, but that doesn't resonate anymore. And we all have to still coexist. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, advise your clients to deal with that 
So for my process, I do a lot of programs on generational diversity, like talking across generations. And what's I, I actually think because the very first program I used to do back when I started the Supreme Court many, many, many years ago, um, so it would have been you know, 11 years ago, was about how to understand millennials. But now 11 years later, the program is how can millennials understand Gen Z? Because that's who's coming into these workplaces now. Right. Um, what I have, I want people to understand two things when I do about generational programs. One, it is a lot about perspective shifting and perspective taking and understanding what were the values and generations that encompass millions of people, right? But what were the circumstances? What were the values? What were the challenges that we know each generation faced during their 20 year you know, period that are different from now? For millennials who were born on technology, who don't understand why I need to come into an office every single day to build a culture because I have a perfectly great Facebook and Instagram and TikTok community at home and I don't need to see them in person all the time. So why are you making me come in person? That is baffling. For baby boomers whose kids are out of the house, who would like to who have brought, who experience a lot of the benefits of in-person engagement, that is something that might be difficult to understand for some, but for others are like, yes, this is yeah. great. I can travel more. I can experience things more. I don't need to live near the urban center where my office is. And then you have the generation in the middle, Gen X, who are so often overlooked, Merle, as you know, and the opportunity to say, I've seen both sides of it, right? And now a lot of those Gen Xers have those Gen Z children and are able to see, hey, you know what? When you sit in front of a screen all day by yourself, I saw what happened during the pandemic and we see what happened when those kids went back to school, that the anti-socialization that happens, the experiences of being isolated, there are people who want that in-person engagement. And so you have all these experiences. Now, who do you have navigating that? Do you have someone who's able to say, okay, you know, as your executive committee, I'm understanding all of these different opportunities and perspectives. Let me design, or like, for example, a return to office plan that incorporates that. Or mm -hmm. when you can't understand why this 25 year old is getting you a document that you said you needed by the end of the day, and they're giving it to you at one o'clock in the morning, where are those expectations? Or they keep on talking about how they need to manage their well-being and you don't get that. But let me tell you something, 30 years ago, you were probably saying the same thing, right? Exactly. So it's all about really having that perspective of where, where are you and they're in their career, where am I? What's interesting, I would say, I mean, I get a lot of, most of my programs are about bias and communicate across differences, allyship. But one program that I get beginning a lot of traction recently is on how, can you share with these young people, this is literally the ask, that they need to hustle for work. Like, why don't they understand that they have to go out there and ask for it and make it happen and get, you know, go out there and make themselves visible? And I'm like, well, because they started, you know, three years ago when the work was endless, when they barely had to do anything, when it was, they were being overworked all the time. And now, you know, things have slowed down a lot. And you're telling me you don't know why they don't hustle for work. It's because they never had to, and they were never trained to do it. So what? So again, it's all about taking those different perspectives and figuring out when someone was started, what their experiences were, and what has changed for them over those years. Well, and then you have to throw on a layer of what is their lived experience. You know yep. what? 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 What is happening for them in their their life? I mean, for at least for me, and I'm sure for you too. You know, you're exhausted about you know what's going on for for you know how black people and others are being attacked right now you know mm -hmm. and so so that that's just a whole another layer not that it didn't exist before but it was never just in your face like it is now of wanting to turn back the clock on on advances that you know we've been able to to uh, live through and and take advantage of and mm -hmm. so there's it's just multi layers of mm -hmm. of of stuff that you know people that leaders i think are responsible for understand acknowledging and understanding it and trying to to deal with mm. i think you know when especially there's um um when i talk about well-being there's a scenario i like to use which is about an, uh, you know, an associate and, you know, I can name him whatever I want, but when I name him Marcus and I talk about what Marcus is experiencing because he feels overworked, he feels like everyone's always relying on him to deliver work to them. And then also, you know, he's experienced, you know, he's, he looks at the news and he experiences racial trauma. And one of the questions I get asked is, you know, Michelle, I don't understand that. And I've never been through it, or I don't know what to say to him. And 
I feel like we need to have more empathy building, right? I yeah, think yeah. part of the work of inclusion is just, y'all, we got it. We got to recognize that all of us are human beings and kindness and compassion go a long way. And if you don't understand what Marx is going through, okay, but I'm sure you have experienced sorrow and grief in your life. And how would you like someone to respond to you when that experience happens? I mean, maybe there are some of you who just want to keep your heads down and get to work fine. Maybe there are some of you who need the day off and make some time off to experience it. That's fine. But you understand that there is grief that is happening and there is trauma that is being experienced. And so you as a fellow human being can reach out to that person and just say, what do you need from me? Here are some options for you that you can take, right? Here are things I would like to offer or that I can share with you or here are some ideas from me instead of waiting for them to tell you what you know you need to do. And if they say yes, great. If they say no, fine. But you've reached out in empathy and in compassion and in kindness. And inclusion, equity is hard. Diversity is, I mean, you can recruit as many diverse people as you want to bring them in. And equity is changing those systems. But inclusion, yeah. y'all, inclusion is about creating a place where people want to stay. And that's exactly. what I want all of my clients to do. Exactly. And the other thing, and then we'll move on. The other thing that I think is key is that with, you know, the the uh, younger generations, even, you know, millennials, because my daughter's a, a millennial, I think because they grew up in kind of the Me Too movement, um, they're, they've, it, it became okay to talk about your trauma, to talk mm. about, you know, what's going on, to talk about, you know, you need therapy or I'm taking therapy or I'm, you know, on the spectrum or I'm this or that. And, and my, you know, my generation would never want anybody to know any about that. You were hiding everything for fear that somebody would use it as a bias against you and you might get fired or you might lose your job. You know, younger people aren't afraid of that at all. And and on the one hand, I'm kind of like, oh, how, how can they put that out there? How can they say that? But on the other hand, I'm like, good for them, you know, yeah. good for them for not holding in these things that are going to give them baggage. You know, the you know, the the emotional baggage that I carry around because I felt like I couldn't say anything. Clearly, I've gotten over it and yeah. went through it. <laughs> but but it took me a lot longer than 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 folks are now. And I just think it's a very interesting when you talk about a melting pot, not mm. only do we have a melting pot of of diversity and demographics and all that, but we have, we have a melting pot of generations that is very interesting right now. Mm -hmm. And it's and what I think is also, you know, we talk about race a lot in the workplace, but the experiences of racism across generations is also different, right? Yeah. And yeah. the reactions to racism across generations is different. You know, whether, oh, you should sit down, get your work done, you should ignore it, you should raise it up, you should, you should deny that it happened, you should accept that it happened, you should speak out because it happened. I mean, it's the same thing with sexism. A lot of whether we share and how we share and who whom we share it with has changed a lot over the generations. And that's part of, I feel like there's like level seven is like, how do we, how do we recognize that, you know, across throughout our different racial and identity groups that we have? Yes. Okay. So I, let's, let's get back to stereotypes. Mm. <laughs> what, what stereotypes do you feel that people make about you yeah uh and why and are they right or are they wrong um i think that they're both so i loved what shimani ngozi says about stereotypes in her ted talk and i cited in my book a lot which is you know the the thing about stereotypes is not that they're all untrue some of them can be true but that they're all incomplete stories about people right they're not telling someone the entire story of themselves so if you look at me and you say okay you know she's a black woman uh, okay, so I'm, she's probably really angry all the time, or you know, she probably won't be very friendly. Because when I so there's another part I do in my programs is for the belonging programs, I do three questions, right? Who are you? And you have to respond with three different answers. I'm a mom. I'm an attorney. I'm an immigrant. What do people assume about you? And you say well, you have two answers. Like, what are the stereotypes people have of you? And then the third question is, what is it that you want people to know about you? It's a very yeah. powerful exercise. Um, but whenever I do it with black women. Those are the two answers that always come up for the stereotypes. People think I'm angry. 
and sharp. people think, yeah, yeah. And it all, all the time I'm angry and I'm sharp and I, and I, and I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm no BS and I take no prisoners and all that stuff. And they don't see the empathy and the compassion and the kindness and my investment in the community and things like that. Or they avoid eye contact with me or, you know, they, you know, they don't, they don't think I went to Taylor Swift concert, which I did. I also went to Beyonce <laughs> concert. I have thoughts. They were both fantastic. So, you know, when it comes to stereotypes, those like, or, you know, the story I tell all the time in my TED talk, you know, the people who thought I was the nanny to my children. Right. I think that's the, I mean, that's how stereotypes work. And then there's the darker ones, which is she's not as competent or, I mean, she, you know, she doesn't really know her stuff. I mean, I'm a public speaker, right? You know, I, you know, I, I go on the speaking circuit all the time. And I see all of these other public speakers and in the speaking circuit, I'm not sure how familiar your audience is, but I'm sure you are. It is about 99% white men. And then there's me. And, and so there's a lot of, well, you know, she probably isn't going to have that, you know, there's always this second guessing of me, especially when it's people I've never worked with before. Is she going to be able to engage the audience as well as this speaker would? Does, you know, does she come across as commanding or confident as that, you know, other, you know, male speaker would? Um, and so you are already having to battle those assumptions that people make of you, you know, in addition to just knowing that, you know, your stuff and you know, you're good at your stuff. But now these have these assumptions that come in that you're not as competent, you're not as smart, you're not as good just because of the color of your skin and the fact that you're a woman. Right. And you're also, at, from my, you know, I've seen you speak um, at Reed Smith's uh, partner. Um, mm, yeah, oh, love that. And yeah, and you're also very authentic. And so, mm -hmm. you know, have how has your authentic, authenticity made a difference in your per personal and professional life? Oh, it's made all the difference. It's made all the difference because I, you know, I started this company. I mean, it makes two two reasons it makes a difference. One, it makes a difference because I get to hire people who, now that I know who I am, I know what my skill sets are. I get to hire people in my company who um, compliment them and conflict with them because I need someone who doesn't always agree with me. I need people who are willing to recognize and see past things that I can't do. But I'm also not having to wear a mask all the time, right? When I have my calls with the clients, I don't do any outreach other than I have a website and I do social media, right? People mm -hmm. find me and they, okay. they want to work with me. And because I, and they know who I am, so I don't have to do any kind of BS. I can just be like, hey, this is who I am. I am this person and this is who I'm going to bring to your organization. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do, customize and design something that works for you. But at the end of the day, this is who you see. And that's wonderful. It's so freeing to like right. to, to just be yourself and to say, you know, if this doesn't work for us, that's fine. I mean, I wish it did. But, you know, if you want to find someone different, that's absolutely fine. I We, we didn't work out and it worked because I think it's better for the both of us because we probably wouldn't have worked out really well together. That almost never happens. It's, you know, it's, it's usually a budget thing, Merle, as you know. Right. Um, but it's just so freeing to be allowed to, I wouldn't say it's all, I'm not always able to say what I do. And, you know, Ritu has a thing where she calls, you know, your authentic self, your performing self and your masked self. And, you know, it's not always, I can do everything I want to be all the time or say exactly what I want, but I get to negotiate with myself and say, my values are this. I believe in the power of empathy and community and compassion and kindness. Is this client who wants to work with me? Are they aspiring toward that? Um, and if they are fantastic, and I think we'll connect really well together. And if they aren't, I mean, do I want to, do I think that if I work with them, I will be putting aside my, my authentic self too much to really, to, 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 I would mourn it. I would grieve that. I would feel like I'm not achieving something. I negotiate with myself all the time. So, sure. so to anyone listening, yes, it's wonderful. And being authentic is an amazing thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be your thing every single second of the day. But the question is when you negotiate what self you're putting out there into the world, how much are you compromising? How much are you giving up? Are you able to go back home or turn off your Zoom screen and say, you know, at the end of the day, I am proud of what I did and I am happy with who I am. And that is what I want for everybody. Exactly. Amen. Um, so let's talk a little bit about current events. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on. I'm sure you've been contacted. I've been contacted mm -hmm. uh, for quotes on, you know, the Supreme Court decision and anti-affirmative decision. And then this most recent um, Blum um, lawsuit 
about the law firm uh, yeah. DEI uh, uh, stuff. What what what's your take on it? What are what are, I know you know what what are you thinking and where do you see it going? I am so incredibly sad about it. That is, I mean, I you know I I I, I mean, there's anger and there's disappointment, but really, it is just sadness and sorrow. We have achieved so much. And if anyone looks at the data from law firms and the legal profession, they will see how much further we have to go. And you're telling us that we can't use anything to get there, really, is what we're, we're being told, right? Because we need to get there, because we work in this world where we want to make sure that, honestly, the profession that has given us more lawyers, more presidents, more congressmen, more senators, more leaders at every level, should reflect the country and it should reflect exactly. this country that we are in. So I don't know how more of a compelling reason that you need for diversity than that, right? This is who we are. And that there is just such, it's like, do we not understand the difference between remedying discrimination and discrimination itself? You can have the discrimination, but then how are you going to fix it? Like, what is what is this other magical solution that you are coming up with? Because I got to tell you, this is the solution and it works. It's been working and we can keep on perfecting it. So that is, I mean, that's why it makes me sad. I just, it's it's a, it's an awful thing to watch and it's an awful thing to experience. And then to have to talk to these students who are just terrified about, you know, their future employers and places that they choose, not saying anything, not speaking up because they are so scared of being sued. And they are so scared of what might happen to them if they do and all these fantastic, people who were so brave when George Floyd was murdered and said, okay, we are committing to this and this and this, and yeah. now y'all are stepping back. So what happened to that courage and that bravery and that risk-taking? Now we're just like, no, nah, it's okay. We'll wash our hands because you know what? It's also a recession. And guess what? We can cut initiatives and cut programs in a recession. So it's not really a recession, but like you see my point, like things are slowing down. So I don't know, Merle, I don't, I don't know what, I, I, you know, I don't know what's gonna happen next. I think the lawsuits will keep coming. And at some point you have to decide, do you want to fight them or do you want to keep retreating or do you want to create a space where this incredible community of law firms and legal departments who have worked so hard to design inclusive spaces can come up with strategies to counter them? And that well, is what, what I know a lot of them are doing right now. Exactly. And what's interesting is that it really isn't. It, it, it's not people who are com coming up with, with solutions to to do it a different way. I, mm. I believe that it's just people. Well, first of all, it's you know people who want to make a name for themselves and you know just in a contrary way, right? Mm. But but also, it's fear. You know, yeah. there there's fear of losing power, of not being supreme, you know, reigning supreme anymore as as a group. Um, and it's and it's not, a, you know, I don't think it's a, the majority of people. I don't think it's a lot of people, but it's people who are rabid and who are willing to speak loudly um, and, and, you know, by any means necessary. But it's it's people I think it's, it's like people using the race card <laughs> and whining about race who are not. You know, it, it it's a flip. It it really has flipped. I worry that, you know, as we, if we keep retreating and then what goes next, right? You know, I'm in an interracial marriage. Is that what goes next? Is LGBTQ rights go next? Like, do we, ha we have all these lovely insurance for any couple, you know, same-sex couples, then does that go next? Yeah. Because we're, at what point do you stop retreating and you draw a line and say, I will retreat no further? And I don't know what that line is, but I'm going to tell y'all it's going to come soon and it's going to yeah. have to, it's, that's going to come. And then we're going to decide what we're going to do next. Um, I, I always, I'm, you know, I'm an immigrant, as you know, and I'm always hopeful that I live in a country that is always going to progress toward equality for everyone. And I want to continue seeing that. And I also know that when any kind of progression happens to equality for everyone, we have this massive, huge, enormous backlash because we have 400 years of inequality to deal with. And it is, and it feels like it is being taken away from some folks. And so what I always wanna see is 
what is your line in this? Like, where are you going to stand up? Where are you, where are you going to be right. when someone comes for your group? Are you going to yeah. wait until someone comes for your group to say and do something? Or are you going to do and say something now? And that is my question for a lot of the folks who, and like, I get it. I get it. I get the position that a lot of my law firm clients, a lot of my legal department clients are in right now. It is a hard, hard, hard position to be in, but we are lawyers. And if we can't figure this out, no one is going to. Exactly. And I hold out hope that, that there are enough smart, dedicated people out there who just will figure, figure it out. But, you know, it's up to us, you know, to, you know, we can't do it ourselves, but we can't, we can't um, stop. So I appreciate you and everything that you do. We are almost out of time. Um, what? We are yes, almost out of time. You know, oh. We're almost out of time. And so I, I wanted to ask you, you know, do you have, you know, any like stories or words of encouragement or advice that that you'd like to, to leave us with? Um, I mean, I feel like we could do a part two to this conversation. Maybe we should do that next year. Uh, but, you know, give some advice to folks uh, about anything that you feel strongly about right now in, yeah, in, I mean, in what you do. What I love about your podcast, Merle, is that you really talk about what, you know, who are authentic people? What are, what are your authentic truths? And especially now, my friends out there who are doing the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion and I ask people, one of the things I like to ask folks in a lot of my programs, especially to students going back to school at the beginning of the year, is when you think of the times in your life that you have been the happiest and the proudest and the most satisfied in the work that you do or at the school that you are, what what values come to mind? And I think as you work, as we continue in this and we see a lot of the cutbacks happening and the resource reallocation happening, I want you to go back to the values that make you do this work. Why are you here? Why do you commit to this? Why does this matter to you? And hold on to that because times are hard. They're going to get a little bit harder and then it's going to change again and then it's going to change again. But your values do not change and you hold yeah. on to them throughout everything. And that is my advice and my hope for everyone listening. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Again, this went way too quick. Um, we'll have to do it again. Um, but I really, really want to say thank you for everything that you do. Um, tell us, tell people how they can reach you. I know I get your, um, your, uh, newsletter, just oh, give people an idea about what you're doing. I love those newsletters. If you want to go to my website, michellesilverthorne.com, you can sign up for Monday mornings with Michelle and I will send out an email to you every Monday, just one email every Monday that, you know, has some advice on, allyship and you know how to all this like what what is it that you can do to design better spaces of belonging and inclusion and equity for everyone and to really remedy past discrimination and current discrimination advice on that um we send it out every monday please do and if you want to follow me on instagram or linkedin or facebook i'm very active on all those platforms and my handle is in with michelle or just search for michelle silverthorne and you can find me i have lots of videos lots of advice um, we're building up a membership community that we're hoping to launch next year. So keep an eye out for that. But it is, I love doing this work and I love creating spaces where people know that they can belong here. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And thank you, Michelle, for being here to be us with me today. And thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.